Please open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. If you could pray anything for your fellow Christians, what would it be? If you could have anything prayed for you, what would it be? Martin Luther said that prayer is a climbing up of the heart into God. None can believe how powerful prayer is and what it is able to affect but those who have learned by experience. Robert Murray Machane said, I ought to pray before seeing anyone. E.M. Bounds said, those who have done the most for God in this world have been early on their knees. In 1 Thessalonians 3, 11-13, we find Paul praying. It was a crucial prayer for a critical need. He was praying for believers that are unified, but they're facing inward opposition, they're facing outward persecution, just like the church does today, and it was threatening their fellowship. My prayer today is that this prayer of Paul would become a model for our prayer for our fellow believers. The beloved must pray for their beloved family in Christ, to love until Christ returns. Paul is praying for an increase of love. Specifically, he is praying for three things. We see the first in verse 11. In verse 11, he prays for providential fellowship. Some of us who have it so easy getting together, taking for granted Christian fellowship, might have a little trouble grasping this part of the prayer. Those of you on the live stream who cannot get to us in person, many of you I speak to every week, I know how much you want to be with us, and so I know how much this prayer means to you. Verse 11 says, May our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. He is praying for providential fellowship. He is praying that God may providentially bless us with being together with you, being face-to-face with fellow believers in their local assembly. May our God direct our way to you. It's a strong word, direct. It means to make the path straight. It refers to leveling out uh, rocky ground or even removing obstacles that that are in the way. And here specifically, it's about removing obstacles that Satan had put in their path because he had said in chapter two, Satan hindered us from being together. But they won't see each other unless God clears the way. Now that is true for our gathering this morning, that unless God had caused our way to be directed to one another, it wouldn't have happened. But in that moment, the path to the fellowship was blocked, and Paul is praying for a removal of barriers. Now who has the power to do that? Paul knows who has the power to do that. He says, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. Who has the power to do that? Two persons of the Godhead viewed as one. Jesus said in John 10, I and the Father are one. The Father and the Son have the power to open the way providentially for their fellowship. This plays up the unity of God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, eternally existing together. The Father and the Son here can grant this request. And it seems they eventually did, but it took some time. 
There were other things that God needed to accomplish in their hearts before they would come back together. In fact, Paul returned to Macedonia some five years later. So that prayer was a long time in coming. May the Lord direct this. In 2 Thessalonians, you see the same word using, being used where it says, that, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. May God cause that to happen. But here Paul is praying for fellowship, providential fellowship. Fellowship is not the same as what many of us often misdefine fellowship as. Oh, we were together, we were talking with some Christians, so it, it must have been fellowship. And oh, how sweet it was. And maybe you gossiped, maybe you told a joke at someone else's expense, maybe the fellowship was actually sin because it really wasn't true fellowship biblically the 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 idea of fellowship is a partnership and a sharing it is very well um, described in chapter 2 verse 8 when paul said we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel but our very lives because you had become very dear to us they were beloved that that word very dear is uh, from agape It's, it's beloved that they've chosen to love one another, and therefore they share not only their, their lives, but the word of God together. This is what happens in true fellowship. And in true fellowship among Christians, salvation is the basis. That's the basis for our fellowship in Christ. In 1 John chapter 1, we read what we have seen and heard. We proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer today, maybe you're here gathered amongst us, you've been invited, we're so glad you're here. Maybe you're listening on the live stream, and you're not a believer today, those words should stop you in your tracks. Because you cannot have fellowship with other Christians unless you yourself are saved. The Gospel tells us that Jesus died in our place at the cross for our sins. He shed his blood. That that the gospel tells us that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and then on the third day rose. Acts 1 tells us he ascended to the Father with the promise coming that he would return in the same way. Every Christian is waiting for the visible, bodily, promised, imminent return of Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian today, The Bible makes it very clear that you are to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. The commandment is even that you would believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. A believer can practice fellowship with fellow believers because of their position in Christ. We are united to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, and so we are united to one another in love. And what Paul is praying for is that Satan's roadblocks would be bulldozed, literally. Literally, the idea of God directing the way is literally bulldozing Satan's plans, bulldozing Satan's schemes and roadblocks. It's interesting, if you look through the Bible, you'll notice that that Satan is not in the first two chapters of the Bible, and he's not in the last two chapters, but he's running amok all the way through the rest of it. John Milton in Paradise Lost said, Millions of spiritual creatures walk the earth unseen, both when we wake and when we sleep. Martin Luther wrote, in in the words of this 
a beautiful song, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Every Christian, if you want to take this prayer to heart, would do this. Trust God and pray hard for face-to-face contact with fellow believers. Now, some of you are like, I have enough. And some of you are like, I'm doing that. Praise God. And some of you are like, I don't want that. Every true believer needs to be in fellowship with the local assembly of believers. I've said it before, I'll say it again. You cannot be a healthy, growing Christian and not be a part of a local church because this is how God has designed it. Trust God and pray for face-to-face contact with fellow believers. It's like, it's an overused example, but it's like the coals on the fire and you take one coal away, it's going to cool down. That we are to be separ- uh, not separated, but connected. And God will move heaven and earth for believers who want to, to be together. We take it for granted. We can get in our car, we can, we can drive here and be together as a church. And so many of us have taken it for granted. And even in a brief window, When we weren't able to do that for a while, last year, we hungered for it even more. Cherish the fellowship that God gives to believers. God is going to providentially orchestrate his plan. He always does. It will not be thwarted. And we could tell story after story after story of how God has providentially brought believers together and done magnificent things by his grace and for his glory. We've seen it happen over and over again. And for a Christian, life engaged in in a local assembly is not negotiable. And it's not to be lived on your terms. You don't get to state all the terms. The terms are in the scriptures. What do we do? We gather together. It's the ecclesia, the gathering of believers. We praise Jesus together. We pray dependently. We are to be led by a plurality of qualified elders. We are to preach the word of God accurately. We we are to administer the ordinances faithfully, the Lord's Supper and baptism. We are to practice church discipline lovingly. And we are to reach the world with the gospel. And this world that we're reaching with the gospel will take a look at the church and will measure whether they ought to listen or not by our love. Some get it. Some are clueless. Over the past couple of years, it has been startling how many Christians have been found out to not understand the, the nature of the church and what it means to be a local church. They just made up their own rules. Their ecclesiology is, is, is weak. They don't understand what... what Jesus says about his church, about how he will build his church, and how, so obviously, it's local assemblies. Every time you're, you're, you're looking through letters in the New Testament, and it's referring to the church, it's always a local assembly led by elders who are preaching, and who, people who are praying, and, and doing the ordinances, and church discipline, and, and missions. So often, over this last few years, it's been shown Uh, deficient ecclesiology on so many people's parts because they don't understand what it means to be a part of a local church. You are beloved in Christ. 
you must become beloved to one another as you do gospel work anticipating the return of Christ. Why is this so important? Because the bonds of our unity in Christ are always being tested by sin and often being stretched to the breaking point. Life in the body of Christ gives the Christian life shape and perspective. It points us in the right direction. It focuses on Christ and one another and reaching the world. But those who love Jesus are, are loved first by him and love him back. And then they love the family that, that he puts them in, warts and all, realizing they're a sinner saved by grace. They're going to be around a lot of sinners. There will be a lot of opportunity for problems. But they want to show the world this unending love, this indiscriminate love. And this is where the rubber meets the road in the Christian life. This is where it's seen if you're genuine or not. We, we, we're, we just welcomed in new members. And we, we tested their, their testimony. And we, we made sure, as far as we can tell, that they're real believers. God forbid that you joined this church and weren't a believer. You need to repent of your sins, come to know Christ, and admit it. Come tell me. I won't you know, broadcast your name all over the world. I will rejoice. May God bless us with being with you in providential fellowship. That's the first part of the prayer. So we've got that. We're here. What's the next part? Verse 12, he is praying for powerful love. Powerful love. May God powerfully bless you with, with more love. And it's, it's related to that curious statement at the end of verse 10 where he says, I want to provide what is lacking in your faith. I want to see you. And I will provide what is lacking in your faith. It's the idea of faith working through love. Faith in Christ expressed in love for Christ and fellow believers and all people. Verse 12, he, he prays, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, not just Christians. Jesus warned against you know, a, too narrow of a definition of love. For all people. For one another, for fellow Christians, and for all. And then he uses himself as an example. He says, as we do for you. We're imitatable because we're imitating Christ. You know what kind of love we showed you. And he is praying to Jesus. And Paul is, is seeking their growth and an abundance of love, a super abundance of their love. Literally, the Lord make you increase and abound. It's make more, increase, literally cause to flood over the banks. It's a picture of, of a river that floods over its banks and doesn't do damage and destruction and, and you know, decimate the countryside, but a picture of, of a river overflowing its banks into fields that need to be watered. The idea is that there would be an overflowing blessing. When you combine these two words as they're meant to be combined here, increase and abound, it literally means to increase to overflowing. That love would be overflowing. It's like a fountain. I saw a beautiful fountain at the Huntington Library and Gardens yesterday, and, and it was just this fountain that was just overflowing with water continually. It was beautiful. Overflowing love is, is beautiful. And interestingly, it wasn't as if the Thessalonians were deficient in their love. They were being, they were being commended for, for their love. In fact, if you look in chapter 4 and you look in verse 9, Paul says now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. 
You yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. They were doing it. Why would he need to pray for overflowing love? Because a continual increase in selfless devotion and love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is not a one-time occurrence. More and more is always the need. It's a, it's a continual need. It's overflowing love. It's like that fountain. It's like a river. And that love is to reach beyond the church to everyone else, to everyone. And boldly, Paul says, and we are your standard to imitate. Kind of makes us shake in our boots, like, whoa. He says, just as ours does for you, I hope, I hope that we would have amongst us an imitatable love. He imitated Jesus, the ultimate standard. Jesus in John 15, 12 said, this is my commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, a sacrificial love, a self-giving love, a love that goes beyond preferences, a, lo a love that goes beyond issues, a love that literally chooses to love in spite of people's sin and in spite of our own sin, that we are to have love towards the body of Christ and as, as it says in chapter 4, verse 12, that you may walk properly before outsiders, those that are not believers, that they would see that love, that they would want that love. He told the, the Philippians, here's what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that your love may abound more and more. Still, overflow the banks. Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul told the Romans, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, and the one who loves has fulfilled the law. He told the Galatians, through love, serve one another. He said the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You will love your neighbor as yourself. And then the fruit of the Spirit is listed out. And the first is, the fruit of the Spirit is love. As Paul said to the Thessalonians, you became very dear to us, beloved. We love you. You weren't all easy to be around. You were all loved by Christ. And therefore, to be loved by his church. The supreme pattern of this love is God's and his overflowing love for us. How God causes his love and his mercy and his grace to, to increase and abound. In Exodus 34, verse 6, it's the, the verse that's quoted the most in the New Testament, and, and God proclaims about himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The psalmist said in Psalm 86, verse 5, You, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved and you will be showered to overflowing with his love. And what happens is in Christ you have, as Paul put it, we, we didn't just love you, we gave you the word of God. We didn't just give you the word of God, we loved you. We did both. Because love and the word go hand in hand. You, you even see in the book of Acts, the word of God increasing and overflowing. The word of God continued to increase. You see it over and over again. Increased and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. The word of God increased and multiplied. The Lord continued to increase his word and it prevailed mightily. 
But what happens? You know Christ, and God puts his love in your heart for him, but also for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that love is able to overcome all the differences. That love is able to overcome. And if it doesn't, you have to ask the question, do I truly know Christ? Don't be upset that you hear it in the Bible or that you hear me say, you should make sure you're a believer. Because it is the most important thing for you to ever know. You need to answer the gospel call and believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. Our love increases and overflows. And God's perfect timing just keeps flowing. But Paul would pray for the Ephesians and say, we desire for you to be rooted and grounded and established in love. That you would see how, how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And God's love overflows for you in Christ. And you get joy. There is joy. This is not momentary joy. This is not a, 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 a burst of joy that you feel and you want to do something good. This is an abiding love in the midst of your deepest trials, an abiding love in the midst of, of your deepest questions, abiding love in the midst of, of your, your deepest secrets, everything about you in Christ. If you're in Christ, God's love is overflowing to you. And what happens is you get into the word and, you, and it just grows and grows and, and you get joy and God gets glory and the church gets built up. And the world even benefits because they see God's family growing in love. And Jesus said, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. This will be the marker. This will be the way people know. So just flood the countryside with, with, with goodness and, and love in Christ. This indiscriminate love for all people. And by the way, the fact that this love is indiscriminate, meaning you love all people without qualification, does not mean that you can't define it. It doesn't mean that it's undefinable. Like, oh, it's just, you know, syrupy, sappy, sentimental love where I feel something, so I'm just going to go do something syrupy, sentimental, or sappy. It's not this generic, nutrient-deficient artificial sweetener. It's robust. It's biblical. It's an informed, intentional love. It's where you love by sharing God's word and sharing your life. And you keep doing that your whole life. There's a power at work in you mightily, and God has given you his word, which is the only thing that can arbitrate between truth and error, because your mind will lead you astray. Everything else is faulty. The word at work prevails mightily in your heart and keeps changing you and prevails mightily over sin and over division and over unlove. Francis Schaeffer, in his book, The Mark of a Christian, said this, the issue in most conflicts is lack of Christ-like love toward fellow Christians. He says, I have observed one thing among true Christians in their differences in many countries. What divides and severs true Christian groups and Christians leaves a bitterness that can last 20, 30, 40 years. 
And it is not the issue of doctrine or belief that caused the differences in the first place. It is a lack of love. It is the bitter things that are said by true Christians in the midst of differences. Church ought to be an incubator for agape love. Church ought to be a hothouse for developing agape love. Paul Bilheimer, in his book Love Covers, says the local church ought to be viewed as a spiritual workshop for the development of agape love and Get this, the stresses and strains of fellowship offer the ideal situation for the testing and maturing of love. You have problems with people? Good. It helps you test and mature in your Christian love. He says that most controversies in local congregations are produced by unsanctified human ambitions, jealousy, personality clashes, and that the real root of many such situations is a spiritual lack in individual believers revealing a lamentable immaturity in love. He says that the local congregation is one of the best laboratories in which individual believers may discover their real spiritual emptiness and begin to grow in agape love. You have to admit that you're empty about it. You have to admit that you're deficient. And this is done by true repentance. True repentance. Not when you go to someone and say, well, you're wrong, and I know I'm right, so I forgive you. This is not where you harbor a grudge for years and then say, well, if they ever come back to me, maybe I'll forgive them. Hey, I'm waiting for lots of people to come back to me and do that. True repentance is where you humbly confess your sins of jealousy and envy and resentment and whatever else it is, and you beg forgiveness from one another. You go to people. And, and once you beg forgiveness, you don't say, and, and, and you? How about you? Where, where's your apology? No, you just love them. And you say what you need to say. That approach results in real growth in the love of Christ, the love that covers. They were loving each other in Thessalonica, but you never get to the point where love stops growing. It needs to increase and overflow. We're to love not only in word, but in deed and truth. That love is to be abounding. It's to be over and above, to abound, and faith working through love is most important. Not your gifts, not all the things that you know how to do, but faith working through love. And, and your fellowship, our fellowship, consists of our sacrificial love towards one another, members of the body of Christ, where we pursue love and the unity of the church. And if it gets divided, it should be lovingly confronted. And if someone doesn't repent, they should be disciplined lovingly. This is how God designed his church to work. Not to say, oh, we're going to cover it over with some icing we're going to pretend like it didn't happen. We're not going to say anything. No, it's where you deal with the, the, the appropriate things in life because if you don't deal with it, it will break out some point in your life. If you don't deal with it, you're going to keep breaking out on people. If, if it doesn't get dealt with in your home, it's going to get broke, uh, break out outside your home. If it doesn't get dealt with here in the church, it'll break out out to the world and the world will say, they're not... They're not living what the Bible says they're supposed to live. 
We have no one to blame but ourselves. We are to be diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as Ephesians 4, 3 tells us. In conflict, or in relative peace as the Thessalonians were, or as we are. I can't think of a lot of things that are going on at Grace Church of Orange right now that, you know, aren't unified, but if there's something you're harboring in your heart, and you're waiting for the moment to blast someone, you need to repent. Don't mess up the unity of this church. Life in the local church is very simple and, and complex. But I said it last week. You join, you keep showing up, you love everyone. I realize that's not everything that goes on in the local church. Uh, there's, there's many other things in the mix, but the greatest of these is love. We all know there's been an increased division and criticalness in the worldwide church in the past few years, along with all the social tensions, all the political tensions. Grace Church of Orange has not been immune to that. But I believe we have a lot of mature believers who actually just deal with their issues as they come up. They diligently. Like, I'm supposed to diligently maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's my part. Your part is to do the same thing. Christ honoring love. Doesn't rejoice in wrong. Rejoices with the truth. You know what true love and, sound, uh, true love and unity is, is grounded in? Solid doctrine. Sound theology. Faithful preaching of the word of God where sin is addressed, where sin is confessed, where sin is even confronted lovingly. Because love leaves no room for someone continuing in a hard-hearted manner. If you say, well, I'm just going to let it go, and I'm just going to forbear, that means you will never bring it up again, and you will love them as if they were your closest friend. But love leaves no room for continuing in a hard-hearted manner. Don't think of someone else. Right now, if you have a hard heart towards someone in the body of Christ, you need to deal with it. We're going to talk more about that tonight at Grace Bible Institute. You know, find ways to express love for one another in the body of Christ. And God can bring it about. Paul is praying that God would bring it about. He would bulldoze Satan's plans and that he would cause the love to overflow. Again, not, a, not an artificial love that we somehow drum up on our own, but the real love of God in Christ for us and then us for others. Chuck Swindoll in his book, Contagious Christianity, lists Four ways you can express love to others. First, he says, really listen to other people, especially those who hold viewpoints which you might not agree with. Like, seriously, like, really listen. Like, ask them a good question. Like, just listen to people that you disagree with. If you have an opportunity, give them the truth from the word. Secondly, he says, look past people's faults to see their strengths. Maybe there's someone right now in your life where you are holding a grudge against, and you will not talk to them, and you're going to leave them out, and you're not going to invite them, I'm going to challenge you, find something to compliment them about today. Let them know you're praying for them. It doesn't take away maybe what needs to be dealt with, but why keep, keep a hatred going? Why not look past people's faults to see their strengths? Thirdly, he said, recognize the value and dignity of other humans. If we could just remember that every time we're dealing with other people, that there is dignity and value in everyone made in the image of God. Fourth, he said, selflessly serve and sacrifice for others. Figure out what that means. Come up with something. That selfless service and sacrifice for others. I mean, we're on this journey together. We are in need of one another. There, 
there is, there is a, a the, let's just say the, the suffering you're going through right now. You're like, I, I can't do this because I'm going through too much suffering. I can't do this because I have too many issues. I can't do this. Well, pray for the rest of the body of Christ's spiritual growth. Pray that we would be together often. Like the sandpaper can, you know, take off all the rough edges. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And, and pray that, that our love would overflow because when love overflows, it kind of just takes over. And, and then, if, you, if you're still disillusioned, and if you're still discouraged, and if you're still downcast about all that stuff, and you go, yeah, but there's all these fellow Christians I have that don't live up to what they believe. Please look in the mirror. Most of the people that come to me with the most complaints about other people are so blind to their own issues. A friend of mine once told me, Put a period on your heartaches. Put a period on your heartaches. Keep moving. Confess your judgmental spirit. Get back into fellowship with fallen, redeemed sinners. Because if you're a Christian, you're one of those. You know what's missing when love overflows? Conspicuously missing when love overflows. Anger. Resentment. Unforgiveness, jealousy, competition, factions, divisions, judgment. And if you're harboring any of those in your heart right now, you have to deal with it. Because it's going to break out on somebody. Clara Barton never harbored resentments. One time a friend recalled to her a cruel thing that someone had done to her. And Clara didn't seem to remember it. And the friend says, well, what? Don't you remember the wrong that was done to you? And Clara says, no, I distinctly remember forgetting that. <laughs> Robertson McWilkin in The Two Sides of Forgiveness says, God's love is unlimited for everyone. Ours ought to be. Love should shape the way we relate to people, whether friend or enemy. Does love cancel the debt? Sometimes. Does love let go of the resentment? Always. You see, if you're a Christian, Christ must be your treasure and the word your compass. If Christ is not your treasure and the word not your compass, your relationships may disintegrate and even become idolatrous. You might downgrade what God has given and your soul falls into disrepair and you neglect the deferred maintenance and, and things get dilapidated and your life turns out to be a mess. For most Christians, the danger is not in denying Christ and Scripture. It is not in delighting in Christ and Scripture. We ought to delight in the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect word. And then deeply develop the relationships he gives us. That you would today, as you think about a prayer like this, pray it. I want to be together with the fellow Christians. I, I want my love to overflow. I want our love to overflow. I want to resolve to, to love and to bless and to forgive. And I want to trust God to empower them to return the favor. Think about parents and spouses. We all know what it's like to love in the midst of a sinful person that you're dealing with. How much more if God's love overflows from us? Not just a parental love or a marital love, but God's love overflowing from us. Maybe there's an area of your life that you've been holding back love. 
How can you let God's love overflow from you today? Paul is praying. We must be praying that God would providentially bless us with fellowship. That God would powerfully bless us with more love. And by the way, prayer answered, I believe, because 2 Thessalonians 1.3, Paul says, your love is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Praise God, it happened. It can happen. God brings it about. And what he prays next in verse 13 is the crux of the whole issue. It's what everything hinges on. You might never have prayed for what he prays in verse 13. If you've never prayed for what he has prayed in verse 13, you need to start praying that today for yourself and for all your Christian friends. What he is praying for is perfect glorification. He's saying, may God bless you with maturity, but ultimately with glorification. He says in verse 13, so that he may, so that, this is, the, this is the reason, so that he may establish, it's another thing God's doing, it's strengthen you, establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He is talking about the day that Jesus comes back. And by the way, you need love overflowing to be blameless in holiness. It needs to happen in your life. This is what happens in believers' lives. Paul is praying that God would grant them inner strength to be blameless in holiness in God's presence when Jesus returns, and they can't bring it about themselves. This is looking forward to a time of accounting, to a time of reckoning. This is referring to the visit of a king, a visit of an emperor. This is the appearance of God himself, his coming. The Greek word is, means presence. This is where you, the judge's evaluation will be of supreme importance and the final decision. An overflow of, of love is the only way to holiness. And the selfish motives uh, ruin the development of love and turns inward in sin, but we are to seek the holiness that God gives. We, we are, if you want to be prepared to stand unblameable in holiness before God as judge, the one who searches every inward motive and tests and tries the hearts of every person, at his final appearance, where we will, we will appear before the judge of all the earth, we will be at the, the Bema seat of Christ, which is the Bema seat of God, where Jesus now is with the Father at his heavenly throne. But there will be a hearing that will take place at, at the future visit of the Lord Jesus. And Paul is praying for a favorable verdict, not just for the Thessalonians, but for you and I, literally that you would make it to the end. Some of you are like, oh, I, I accepted Christ a long time ago. I got fire insurance. No, actually the Bible says you're proven true as a Christian if you continue on in Christ. Christ's coming is referred to over 1,800 times in Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the end of the book, he says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, I am praying for you to make it to the end. He told the Corinthians, he will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That you would be able to stand in the presence of his glory with great joy, as Jude says. As, as he said to the, uh, Paul said to the Colossians, he, Jesus reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death, to present you holy 
and blameless and above reproach before him. This is on that day. John Wesley observed, the spirit in the heart of the true believer says with earnest desire, come Lord Jesus. John Calvin noted, we must hunger after Christ until the dawning of that great day when our Lord will fully manifest the glory of his kingdom. John Knox said, has not our Lord Jesus gone up into heaven and shall he not return? We know that he shall return. Billy Graham once said, often when I go to bed at night, I think to myself that before I awake, Christ may return. One writer said this, we are not just looking for something to happen. We are waiting for someone to appear. Someone to come. And when all the things come to pass, the Bible promises will come to pass. Do not drop your heads in discouragement. Do not shake your heads in despair. Lift up your head in delight. The glory of Christ. Someone said of some intensely persecuted Christians, their eschatology saved them from utter despair. It ought to be the return of Christ and his promised return for his church that would save you and I from utter despair. Paul is praying for open doors, for fellowship. Paul is praying for ever-increasing, overflowing love in the body, but he's praying, too, that we would live a worthy life, that you should pray, you should pray for the glorification of every true believer to make it to the end, to be proven genuine. 2 Thessalonians 1 Paul says, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. All of this, only the Lord Jesus can bring it about with your full cooperation, with your full engagement, with your glad willingness where you daily allow the Spirit of God to examine your heart and life in light of the Scriptures, where you ask the question, is, is my faith expressed in love for fellow believers? Do I love with my actions and in truth? Do my non-Christian neighbors and colleagues at work say that my life is marked by love? How do I demonstrate God's love to openly antagonistic people? You'll notice that as we've been going through 1 Thessalonians, what has begun to take shape is beautiful. A portrait of becoming beloved within the body of Christ, how, how a determined love defeats disunity in Christ's church, that believers know they're chosen by God, beloved of God, dearly loved. And therefore, changed by the gospel, you turn to God from idols, you, you wait actively for Christ to return, the, the, the word of God is at work in your life, and you're, you're connected in beloved fellowship and relationships. You, you love your new family in Christ. You, you give appropriate care to those that are in the body. God is just weaving this beautiful tapestry of, of a loving body together, and it, it compels like a magnet. This is how the world will know if we belong to Christ. And then your beloved fellowship, you're connected in ministry. You, you say, I'm going to love all people. And this is why this is the crucial prayer for the crucial need, because this is prayer for the church. This is why the church is so important. 
This is sincere fellowship. They're praying to providentially see one another, that God may providentially bless us with you, and, and that Satan's plans would be bulldozed so we could see each other and help each other in Christ, and that we would have superabundant love. It would overflow the banks. It would, they would just increase in love, and that there would be a sanctified glorification coming about. The presence of the king who will evaluate and judge one day that we, that we would perfectly see Jesus glorified. He's praying. May God perfectly bless you with maturity leading to your glorification. Pray it for every believer. Pray it for yourself. Pray that God would accomplish the progressive sanctification in your life and ultimately glorification. Romans 8.29 says, those he justified, he also glorified. As good as done, but you haven't seen it yet. And these are all active verbs, that God would direct the way, that God would cause to overflow, that God would establish. These are all dependent upon God to bring about and he makes our hearts willing. I love what Ephesians 3, Paul prays, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all, all that we can ask or think. But we all know how easy it is not to love when others are in need. Long ago, there were two boats that crashed in England, and the Princess Alice collided with another boat in dense fog on the River Thames. 600 people drowned in the dark waters. And nearby, there were two ferrymen that were anchoring their boats for the night. They both heard the collision. They, 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 all heard, they both heard the screams of the stranded, but they reacted quite differently. The first said to himself, I'm tired. I've had a long day. I'm going home. No one will see me in the fog. It will be impossible to save everyone. At the coroner's inquest, he was asked, Did you hear the cries? Yes, sir. What did you do? Nothing, sir. Are you an Englishman? Aren't you ashamed? Sir, the shame will never leave me till I die. The second ferryman heard the cries for help, jumped back in his boat, rowed as hard as he could to the wreck, found a bunch of people just floundering in the water, pulled as many women and children into his boat as he could get, and it became too dangerous for him to, to take anyone else. And he, he rode to shore with the cry, Oh God, for a bigger boat. When you hear the cries, when you see that someone needs to be loved, do not make excuses for why you cannot help. Row to their rescue. And cry out to God. Oh God, for a bigger love. For a bigger love. And Lord God, we thank you and praise you that one day, one day Jesus will return. We pray, Lord, come, Lord Jesus. We do not know the hour, the day. We know the urgency. And so we want to keep praying this prayer that you would continue to providentially allow us to gather and to love to overflowing, not just in this place and with this group, but to the ends of the earth, to all people, through this community. Where can we show Christ's love by sharing the gospel in our life. Show us, Lord. Use us, Lord, for your grace and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.